0: This is Cultivating Place, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Plant Life International is a British conservation charity working nationally and internationally to save threatened flora. With more than 30 years in this work, Plant Life's members and team of dedicated conservation experts work with landowners, businesses, conservation organizations, community groups, and governments pushing boundaries to save the rarest of flora and to ensure that familiar flowers and plants continue to thrive. From roadside verge rewilding to no-mo-may to conservation campaigning and policy work, Plant Life's CEO, Ian Dunn, is with us this week to share more about their goals and strategies. Welcome, Ian. It is a great pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you, Jennifer, and delighted to be with you.
0: So, you know, I I often ask people to get me started by asking them about like their own personal mission statement. What gets you personally out of bed every morning for this work?
1: Well, I think that's a great question. And I was was reflecting, in fact, just this morning on um, something very similar, really. So the the world around us is extraordinary. And uh, I mean, extraordinary from from a multi-central perspective. And we were talking this morning, uh, in fact, with, a, with one of the uh, major journals in the UK around some of the work we're doing. And I was explaining that it's the, it's the combination of the visuals, the smells, uh, the sense of space, of being in the open air. And from a very young age, pulling all of those aspects together, that, that multi-central um, interaction with nature is really what drives a lot of our work. And it, it, it's, it's as much um, how we connect our senses with nature as much as what happens within nature and how as people we interact with nature that I find really fascinating.
0: I like that. I like that. And it's true. And it's um, that's a wonderful way to put it. And it would be such an impoverished life for anyone if... Those sensory experiences were diminished, even if we don't articulate them every day or consciously notice them. They are embodied in us from very, very first, probably, development in, in, our, in our mothers, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I, I think they are. And if you think what, um, what perhaps stops you dead in your tracks, then sometimes mm. for me it might be uh, the smell of honeysuckle or the smell of night jasmine. Mm and something just which is out there within nature just just connects in a certain way that you just think wow that's that's an amazing interaction and it stops you and it reconnects you Uh, and i think it's very um it's very deep within us i think it certainly comes from um way back in our development as a species um it it, it comes from the childhoods we have as well i think so there are there are many ways we connect with nature in very different ways, and all of them are equally powerful.
0: Let's go back a little bit before we dive into the current work of plant life and tell us a little bit about you and you know, your earliest influences of people and plants and places that grew you into a man for whom this would be valuable work. Ian, Where, where were you born and raised and who showed you these values?
1: So I I had quite a quite a peripatetic childhood in that we lived in four or five places. But in those early formative years, and I would say probably from the age of um, perhaps three until 12, uh, we were living in the middle of the UK. It's compared to the US, of course, it's a very, very small country. Uh, But in the middle of the UK, there's a there's a beautiful national park called the Peak District. And Mount, the, the peaks are very small, again, compared to the US, but but it's a very, very beautiful space. Uh, and in fact, I had a really good friend, a good mate from school, and his parents used to go out every weekend into the peak district and just explore it. And in those days, we had this enormous freedom. We weren't um, protected and cushioned. And uh, you know, frankly, we were just allowed to spend days upon days outside um, in the national park, uh, walking, scrambling, climbing trees, uh, playing in rivers. Um, and those those early years probably provided that foundation for the rest of my life.
0: There is something particular about having been allowed this gift early in life that um, that I find very moving. Is gardening among these uh, activities that were imbued in you early, Ian, is gardening an aspect of your life now?
1: As it certainly is now. Uh, it wasn't actually when when we were younger, uh, my parents weren't, gardening wasn't really their, their great love. They were musicians, and that was how they spent their spare time. So a garden was um, a piece of lawn. It was for kicking a football around or for throwing a ball around. So in fact, gardening came to me um, really, really quite a lot later. Uh, mm-hmm. I spent much of my first career working for big business in quite senior positions and all around the world. And gardening was, I suppose, in some ways, an, an easy way to de-stress. It was a very quick way of, of leaving the desk or when you got home, um, just being outside. So gardening mm-hmm. came to me really quite, um, quite late and almost in a secondary or tertiary manner, I would say, as, as, a, way, as a way really of, of uh, well-being and benefits, even before we were discussing well-being and mental health to the degree we are now. It was just a really good way of changing uh, the daily routine.
0: And so walk us through um, this arc of your life. You, you grow up, you go to school, you study what and where does that take you?
1: Yeah, so I studied natural sciences at university as a first degree. It was one of the very early degrees. It was actually at the University of Southampton, and it was, uh, which is a very strong research university in the U.K., and it was a very innovative design in terms of a modular approach. We could self-build our degrees effectively. Um, and the first year was doing the basic sciences. It was the organic chemistry, the physics, the maths, et cetera. Uh, but then later on, I, I developed my interest in ecology, uh, ecosystems, uh, some of the botany. And particularly, I was very interested in the interaction between insects and plants. And the, the closeness and the chemistry and, the, and the, the the true integrated systems that were around us
0: was there like an epiphany moment or a, a mentor who kind of showed you this magical network of interactions that moved you in that direction, or did that happen sort of by chance on your own?
1: well I think there's there's probably a couple of people in many of our many of our lives, but I had a, I had a professor at the time, and he uh, he had an idea, really, and, it, uh, and he gave me the freedom to explore it. And the idea was that uh, plants would react very, very quickly to the environment around them. And that was, quite a, that was quite a new concept at the time. And in essence, what we discovered was that as soon as a leaf is bitten into by an insect, by a caterpillar or something like that kind, hmm. it, there's almost an instantaneous chemical reaction. And one of the reasons in your garden that you see Uh, leaves with just small pieces taken out of them, or perhaps holes taken out of them, is because they flood an area of damage almost instantaneously with uh, chemicals called tannins. And these tannins make the leaf very unpalatable. So the epiphany, and in fact, as an undergraduate, uh, we we had a paper published in um, a, a very august journal. What we demonstrated for the first time was that plants were... Reacting in seconds to the world around them, so they're not the static, um, stable, steady organisms that many of us think of them are. That no, they really do—they're they're very reactive, and that was that was extraordinary to to have that um, that finding. I can remember the, the summer holidays, the summer vacations. I was working day after day in the lab, and I was doing chemical reaction after chemical reaction, and not quite believing what, what I was finding. And then getting to the end of the summer and thinking, yeah, this is really, really interesting. And it's, it's really quite new. Um, and it opened up, I suppose it opened up my eyes to the world around us from a, um, at a micro level as well as at the macro level.
0: Yeah. And it makes you see plants in such a different way to realize they are not the passive beings that we perceive them to be at first glance or m- most superficial perspective. Um, which allows for both a lot of wonder and uh, respect as well. So, okay, so you, you, you go on this journey in your uh, undergraduate work, as it were. Where do you go from there?
1: Well, we then actually um, decided that we wanted to do a 12-month scientific expedition to the Brazilian Amazon. So we, a group of five of us, we put our heads together, and we, uh, we did something very unusual at the time time. Brazil at the time was um, uh, was still in a military dictatorship, but we had uh, a number of projects that we particularly wanted to uh, explore a bit further. And we we managed, um, you know, with sort of a couple of years of really hard work to put together this 12-month expedition. And a couple of those months, we joined the New York Botanic Gardens in doing a plant survey from the riverine rainforests in northern Brazil. Up to the tabletop mountains, and we effectively did a two month. Every single day of two months, we collected plants from uh, the river floor right up to the top of these just magnificent tabletop mountains, uh, and found many new species. And uh, you know, really, a sort of very extreme expeditionary environment. That was a very very formative year. We did a lot of work with yeah newly contacted indigenous peoples. Uh, I had the privilege of. Of living and working amongst uh, three different uh, tribal groups or indigenous groups coming out of the Amazon at the time, and clearly language was an issue, but they were able to share some of their medicinal knowledge, some of their use of fungi. Or they used the forest around them as a as a pharmacy, effectively. Um, and on one day, they identified over one hundred and fifty plants within walking distance of the village that they used for all kinds of um, uses. Um, whether it might be foodstuffs or whether it might be medicinal. Um, and again, that, uh, that gave me a sense of uh, this extraordinary interaction between people and their environment and how, how it's very easy and I think how uh, largely we've become so disconnected from um, the world around us that we're, we're not as appreciative and we're not as knowledgeable of, of the plants, even many of the plants in our gardens, um, as as we could be and hopefully will be um, once again in the future.
0: What year was this and how old were you uh, during this year, which must have, I'm just imagining, blown your own sense of perspective wide open?
1: Yeah, so that was 1984. We, uh, we went out in, um, well, in fact, the end of 1983 through until 1984. And yes, in the in, um, In those days, it sounds that sounds an awful long time ago. But in those days, you didn't travel as much, and I think I'd only been maybe I'd left the UK perhaps uh, just once before to go camping in France or something. So ending up in in Boa Vista, Manaus, and a number of other cities in uh, Brazil first and foremost, and then spending many many months in some of the remotest rainforests on the planet uh, was was extraordinary, and it was a life defining Mm -hmm. moment. I would say.
0: Okay, so you you do this year, you come back. What happens? Where do you go from there?
1: Well, it took a bit of a detour then. So I I got back. We were in a little bit of a um, uh, little bit of debt. We had to we had to borrow some money for the expedition to really deliver the results we wanted. Uh, and I had the choice between uh, a PhD and getting a doctorate, or joining uh, the Shell Group, uh, the you know the big oil company, and. Um, Really, I suppose, because of the expedition and some of the other activities, uh, they invited me to join their graduate program. Um, And largely, uh, they did a very good selling job, but also uh, it gave me a way of paying off some of the debts. And uh, so I joined Shell and, uh, in fact, spent the next 25 years with the Shell group. Uh, They're extraordinarily good employers. I went all around the world. They, They sent me back to Brazil Um, To look after part of the business in Brazil or South America, actually, and then after twenty-five years, decided that that was probably enough. Um, Some great experiences; very happy to have have worked for them. Uh, But my wife actually identified; she saw a job uh, in the Economist, the Economist magazine, which was working for the the British Antarctic Survey, and uh, she said, "Ian, this is um, you know, this is the perfect job for you. It it reconnects you with uh, the world." you love and the world you came from. So I, I applied for um, uh, the role in the British Antarctic Survey, which was effectively running a lot of their activities in the Antarctic uh, and the Arctic. And uh, that was the next major change in my career, really. And um,
0: I'm, I am reading in between the lines here, Ian, but there is something in this moment that leads your wife to see this job and say, this is a great job for Ian. Were you, 25 years on, so that puts us...
1: Yep, 2009.
0: Were you experiencing any cognitive dissonance with the role of Shell in the world and what you had been doing prior to that? And I know that's a complicated question, and I'm not asking you to throw Shell under the bus. I am just uh, trying to identify your... Um, you know, where your head was and your heart was at this moment and, and what that kind of teaches all of us,
1: Ian. Yes, I think it was probably more of a, at the time, it was more of a personal position rather than a corporate position. I was uh, running a very big business area. Uh, I was flying intercontinental uh, almost every week, every other week, um, spending a fair bit of time in, in Houston, but, at the, but also uh, with global operations. Uh, it really was right across Africa, Middle East, Asia, et cetera. And I, I think uh, I got really very, very fed up of sitting inside an aluminium tube. Uh, I got very mm-hmm. fed up, perhaps, of um, constant sleep deprivation. And I think my wife mm-hmm. and family got very fed up with me not being there. So <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think a number of things came together. Um, now, at the same time, I had... Um, I was reconnecting perhaps through some of my non-exec work with the natural world. And I was um, perhaps perhaps just beginning like many people were 10, 11 years ago to see what we were doing to the planet in a, in a very different way. And I recognized that in fact, I was, I was very much part of it. I mean, my carbon footprint would just be disastrous. I mean, the amount of flying I did. Um, so I don't think at the time it was particularly uh, oil or extractive industries versus uh, other social activities, because you know, we run our society um, on concentrated energy. I mean, hydrocarbons are effectively concentrated energy. So we all choose or we, you know, we have all been choosing to run society the way we run it at the moment. So I think a lot of the, the dissonance is perhaps retrospective. Um, my knowledge and my awareness has grown extraordinarily rapidly in terms of the wider impact. But the, the decision to make the change was much more of a personal one rather than a um, corporate one.
0: This is Cultivating Place. Ian Dunn is the CEO of Plant Life International, a British conservation charity working nationally and internationally to save threatened wildflowers and plants. Their team of dedicated conservation experts push boundaries to save our rarest flora and ensure that familiar flowers and plants continue to thrive as well. We'll be right back after a break, stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I really enjoyed the multi-part seed series we've just finished up. It opened my eyes and my mind and certainly my understanding of the seed world in its many layers and tendrils reaching out into the world. And we're now into this at least two-part series checking in on biodiversity on our planet as of right now. I think the two subjects are directly related, don't you? Seeds and the state of our biodiversity. And in many ways, the two subjects meet in our gardens. The more we plant strategically for biodiversity, the more we seed it in our gardens, then the more there can be. This is an agency specific to gardeners that cannot be underestimated. We're back now to our conversation with Ian Dunn, CEO of PlantLife, a British conservation charity. As we come back, Ian shares his experience working with the Arctic Survey prior to getting his master's in sustainability and climatic dynamics after his 25-year career with the Shell Oil Corporation. Ultimately, Ian went on to manage a Galapagos conservation trust before moving to the work of plant life.
1: Yeah, so the, well, the British Antarctic Survey is, uh, has a dual role. Um, it, it operates activities uh, primarily on the uh, Antarctic. We do a lot of work with the, um, with the American um, Antarctic organizations as well, uh, Sedan and McMurdo and at South Pole. But they also have a really world-leading position in climate science. And that the climate science really looks at the three three polar regions. So you can look at the Antarctic, the Arctic, but also the Himalayas. So the three areas of the planet where you have very, very high uh, ice content and very extreme temperatures. And those three areas, we are seeing the amplification of climate change far greater than almost anywhere else. You've had extraordinary challenges in the US over the last years. Mm. But in terms of the statistical year-on-year differences, the, uh, the poles are really seeing these extraordinary changes. So the Antarctic Survey really reconnected me with climate science, with polar science, um, and this, with this very deep understanding of just how rapidly some of the world around us is, uh, is changing. So that, that led me to do a, um, I did a master's degree at Cambridge University, perhaps give me some academic grounding in, in the topic of sustainability and climate dynamics. Uh, then took the decision that I, would, uh, that I wanted to run a conservation organisation, so I then ran the Galapagos Conservation Trust. There are two main organisations yeah. who support the Galapagos Islands. There's Galapagos Conservancy in the US. It's a great organisation. Your listeners should definitely look it up. Uh, and there's the Galapagos Conservation mm-hmm. Trust in the UK. So I then ran the, um, the Conservation Trust there, and that was a fascinating three years. spent a lot of time in Ecuador. Uh, worked a lot with um, the Galapagos National Park, uh, with the local community in the Galapagos, and got this deep understanding of the connectivity between geology, between uh, soils, between the botany and between the the fauna and the wider ecosystems. But very, very particularly, uh, I changed the direction of the charity to embrace and engage the local population much more. 97% 97% of the Galapagos is national park and the remaining 3% were about 30 to 35,000 uh, Galapaguenos, so the local people from Galapagos. Um, most of them will never have entered the national park. It was the preserve for overseas tourists. And um, we we felt between us that that was a very, very unsustainable model. And we started a very specific program around educating and engaging the local community in the world around them, as well as working on conservation projects in Galapagos. So a lot of the challenges that we're facing on a planetary basis, you can actually look at Galapagos and you can say, well, they're facing it exactly the same. Uh, exploitation of fish resources, uh, climate change, uh, food production, food security, uh, population declines, uh, rare species, et cetera. It's all happening there, and it's all happening on that microcosm um, in the same way that it's happening planetary planetary wide as well. So that was um, that was three years, and then I got a call actually from the University of Southampton again, and um, uh, they were looking for a chief operating officer. It's quite a it's a big research university. It's about a billion dollar turnover, and because of that, the challenges we're facing now, which you can really define as being. Um, in in three major macro areas. So we have climate challenges, we have nature-based challenges, and we have social challenges. Um, And all three of those are coming together at the moment in this extraordinarily complex world we're now living in. And uh, along with governments, big business, and and, um, public life, universities are a key element of our societies who have the time, the wherewithal, and the intellect to actually look at some of these challenges and to come up with ideas as to how we might address them. So that was then four years at the university. And then um, Plant Life came along as an opportunity. And uh, 18 months ago, joined Plant Life as their chief exec.
0: There are some threads in your journey story here that I find really complex and and um, sometimes controversial threads. Some of those come with um, say the Galapagos Foundation uh, recognizing that there was this lack of engagement and empowerment of the actual people who live there and how to re-engage them and I am guessing it wasn't just a, a matter of, you know, quote unquote educating them, but also learning from from them, I am guessing. And how we bring all stakeholders to a table to expand the understanding of of everyone at that table. Because sometimes, as you and I know, we have too many of one kind at decision-making tables and not enough diversity of um, understanding and and history sitting there. And that also leads me to the um, the university sector and and how we teach and who we teach and who is teaching, and the importance of also expanding that so that we have the widest uh, lens possible to make some of these decisions about how how and why and with whom we all move forward. I, I know that's very of the moment, but uh, I, it's an of the moment that I am watching with great fascination in the horticultural world, and I, I think it's one of our most exciting edges of growth right now.
1: That's right, I th- entirely right. I think many of the um, many of the social challenges and therefore many of the wider challenges we face now come from those very early situations that individuals and communities find themselves in, and this huge social inequality that that exists. Uh, right across the globe, as well as within our nations, which are the you know the more developed mm. nations, and the, there's no doubt that that social inequality leads all the way through to how populations connect with horticulture, with uh, with the outside world, with with the natural world, and for many many communities, they either they don't feel welcomed, or they don't feel engaged, or they don't feel invited, or they don't feel they have a voice in perhaps some of these wider aspects of the lives that, that we lead and that simply that simply has to change and, it does. And, yeah. um, you know universities in the UK and I know in the US as well there's a huge social diversity program and it's recognizing that if you grow up in some parts of the UK you simply will not have the same access to the best education or the best and sometimes the best teachers or the best facilities and that that shouldn't define your life and we need to find ways to make sure that the social inequalities that we face, we address really very quickly and very rapidly because without, without doing so, we won't actually address some of the wider issues we, we, we face as well.
0: No, and that lack of trust and lack of faith is centuries in the making. So it will take uh, some time and effort and persistent effort on all of us to, to shift. So, but what I love here. What I really love here, Ian, is that there is something about your story, about going far away in order to come back home and focus and see and and use your lessons uh, in your own backyard. Tell us about plant life. What, you know, it came up as an opportunity, what drew you to it. And then let's, um, I'll ask you a little bit more about, about it as well. But yeah, start there.
1: Yeah, so Plant Life um, formed thirty-one years ago, and um, in London there's a number of uh, really world-class museums, and one of them is the Natural History Museum. And uh, a group of quite uh, insightful people sat down and said, "Well, there's there's a lot of conservation organisations focusing on fauna, on the you know on the on the panda, on the big game of Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's nobody really thinking about plants, and." You don't get the conservation of the birds and the animals, etc., unless you actually look after the habitats, the plant habitats that they live in and are part of. So plant life was really formed out of this concept that we needed to have an organisation which had plants and fungi actually as um, the primary focus because that is the building block of um, nature right throughout our planetary systems. Um, And that's that sense of uh, focusing on the plant world, both at a landscape scale, a habitat scale, but also at the species level has stayed with us um, ever since. And what drew me to plant life was that it's an organization with this extraordinary knowledge. We have we have world-class botanists, we have world-class mycologists. Um, and we are called upon to support almost all aspects of UK society and in in fact international and I'll I'll come on to international in in a moment Um, but because of the competence within the organisation we're asked uh, to be involved in discussions around national parks and restoration of nature rewilding um, plant protection uh, species protection but it was an organisation that, in fact very few people had had heard about so I, I came across uh, the organisation with this enormous potential, really an extraordinary skill set, great people, relatively small, in an area not very much focused upon almost anywhere globally, and therefore uh, with this this huge unrealized potential that we we now aspire to start to realise, uh, and that's um, that's a fascinating challenge. And one of, one of the real beliefs I have in terms of uh, all this backstory, which I've, I've shared with you in terms of bringing together the private sector, so the corporate world, the university sector, is that in, in today's world, with the complexity of the problems we have, we cannot solve those problems with unitary approaches. It's something you mentioned before, Jennifer, about the, the voices around the table are too similar. You know, as conservation organizations, I absolutely believe wholeheartedly we have to be working with the corporate sector right across the corporate sector. You know, I don't mind whether it's big oil, whether it's big mining, whether it's financial sector, they have to be part of the solution. Governments have to be part of the solution. The nonprofits, you know, the non-governmental organizations, we're part of the solution and convening people, getting people around the table to have those conversations, which says, yes, ultimately the bigger Challenges and the bigger goals, or the ones that we can only address together, is, is fundamentally important. And therefore, organizations like Plant Life, and you've got some great organizations in the US as well. We can't be purists, we can't be sitting in our ivory towers and saying, you know, thou shalt, you must, you know, you're doing this wrong, etc. We have we have to use our positions to be these powerful conveners of multiple voices from multiple sectors of society and finding the ways collectively to address some of these challenges. And that's that's what organizations like Plant Life can do.
0: This is Cultivating Place. Ian Dunn is the CEO of Plant Life International, a British conservation charity. Their team of dedicated conservation experts work with landowners, businesses, conservation organizations, community groups and governments. Pushing boundaries of where we see land and where we see plants that might need more support. We'll be right back after a break. Alright, so thinking out loud this week, did you hear that statistic from Ian Dunn and Plant Life's findings? 75% of the United Kingdom's wildflower diversity has been found on people's lawns in the United Kingdom after they simply stopped mowing their lawns and probably spraying for quote-unquote weeds. Think about that. I wonder if it would be true in the U.S. What do you say we try and find out? I am all in for no mow May, and longer, even on my tiny, weedy, push-mowered back lawn. I will report back what happens with mine if you report back on what happens with yours. We'll talk more about this in May. We're back now to our conversation with Ian Dunn, CEO of PlantLife, a British plant conservation charitable group working nationally and internationally. As we come back, Ian shares more about the specific programs and successes of PlantLife, including the number of native wildflowers found in people's lawns after they simply stopped mowing. Tell listeners a little bit about the specific areas that plant life is working in. So, you know, one of the ways that I engage with plant life is to read its newsletter and to follow it on Instagram and to see some of its really great successes and energy that has been um, created around things like wildflowers in in on roadsides, around hedgerows, around you know meadows. So. The the areas of real focus are conservation, campaigning, policy, and then sort of consultation. Tell us about each of these areas and then maybe talk about some of the really signature programs on the ground.
1: Yeah, sure. So let's, uh, in, in fact, I'm going to start at international level and then take it right down to some of those specific programs. Great. So we were we were instrumental in establishing the global strategy for plant conservation, that's uh, that's linked to the IUCN, so um, the Conservation for Biodiversity. So working at uh, cross-governmental levels, we helped shape the global strategy for plants, and that's still a very active piece of our work. Uh, within that, we established what um, are known as important plant areas, and important plant areas or are IPAs have a very evidence-based metric of very high plant diversity, and uh, we run the the global database for that and we now have thousands of IPAs right across the globe, and in some areas they're just identified as really important areas with no protection. Uh, In other countries, those IPAs are now protected sites because of their plant uh, biodiversity or plant diversity.
0: Can you give us an example of, of a couple of these?
1: Uh, the ones that are most protected, so uh, particularly in, in some of East um, Eastern Europe, in the Balkans, uh, the areas um, which have been identified uh, potentially as some of the very ancient forests, uh, potentially some of the very ancient meadows. You get very, very old meadow systems as well as you get ancient forests. Um, they're now recognised. Mm-hmm. They're spatially mapped. It's It's very important that you can actually... some some lines on a map and you can identify where these areas are and those areas are now um, increasingly getting um, protected for the value of their plant diversity. Uh, In the UK we have um, a relatively small number actually, we have 165 uh, IPAs in the UK and they are generally very important sites for scientific interest. They've either got very rare species or they've got rare assemblages of species Uh, with various degrees of protection. So, and that work's still ongoing. We see that as part of our our full name, actually, is Plant Life International. You know, we work with various organisations, including in in the US, um, to try and identify and protect these very critically uh, important diverse areas. Because if you can protect very high diverse areas, you have the chance of actually spreading those plant species more widely when the opportunities arise. Uh, now, then uh, some of the more sp- uh, specific activities. So you mentioned the road verges work. Um, the idea behind road verges is that uh, in the, f- for your listeners, if you think about uh, London as a city and then times it by five, the amount of land which is represented by road verges in the UK is the, fi- is the size of five major cities. So it's a huge land area.
0: Huge land area. Yeah, that's
1: awesome. Uh, road verges um, they provide corridors so you can connect uh, nature reserves you can connect pieces of land uh, in and of themselves they generally have uh, some hedges as you mentioned So you get hedgerows alongside them on the other side of the hedges you often have some space as well so uh, if you imagine what we're trying to do in the wider world of conservation where we don't have the same vast national parks that you have in the u.s um land pressures are really intense and we have to look at every single piece of land and see how we can use it effectively for nature so in the uk we're very high density of populations lots of urban areas road verges are very important corridors and if we can change the management of our road verges we've calculated on an annual basis that would be an extra 400 billion flowers mm would grow in the UK and you can almost do one insect for one flower, that would be 400 billion more pollinators, more insects, just by using road verges, which is effectively underutilized land in a different way. So plant life uh, started the road verge campaign uh, nine years ago. We now have 75% of all councils all, um, all voter areas. They are now changing their land management techniques. They're allowing road verges, uh, always keeping safety in mind, but they're allowing allowing road verges to become much more wild. And the way I like to visualize it, if you if you were lying back on the ground in one of your dark spaces in the US and you looked up at the Milky Way, there's, a, there's somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. And it's, it's an extraordinary sight. That is what... Uh, just in the UK, we could generate in terms of flowers and insects if we changed the way we managed our road verges.
0: Impressive, yeah. The the concept is sort of beautiful in its elegant simplicity, and you know that changing of behaviour. I am guessing, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, in the U.S., especially there are complications in the West with a lot of fire issues, but, you know, we're talking about not spraying pesticides and herbicides. We're talking about not mowing, Uh, not just not mowing when the the seed, the plants are in flower, but actually waiting until the seeds are ripe enough to then disperse themselves so that that seed bank is kept viable. Am I sort of getting it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So one of the other um, uh, flagship campaigns we uh, we launched some years ago was uh, No Mo May. So No Mo May was a plant life um, origin uh, concept, and certainly over the last couple of years, with uh, with the consequences of of pandemic and people moving around much less, uh, No Mo May has really caught the public's attention. In fact, this year it was taken up um, in Canada, in parts of the US, it was taken up uh, in Belgium, Germany, Australia, etc. Uh, And the rationale behind No Mo May was, it's very much a, um, it's a public engagement idea because the concept is if you do nothing, i.e. don't cut, don't spray. If you do nothing for the month of May, uh, you will see this extraordinary change in really small pieces of land around you. Yes, it looks messy. It looks a bit scrappy. You get um, uh, all different kinds of lengths of grass growing. But very quickly, people find that orchids start popping up on their lawns. Um, Hundreds, literally hundreds of different flower types start growing on your your local grassland areas. So we, we go from a monoculture, effectively a desert of plant life and a desert for animal life. And just by doing nothing, by not mowing in May, you have this extraordinary change in the world around you. Now, for a lot of our gardens in the UK, that's, that's been a really big behavioural change. Um, and sometimes, not as much as in the US, but sometimes you've got local bylaws, you've got uh, residence agreements uh, that requires you to keep your, your lawn short, keep your grass short. So it's not, again, it's very complex behavioural change. Um, but what we found this year is that thousands, tens of thousands of people have changed their lawn management, and not necessarily all of the lawn. You can take a corner, you can take a strip. Um, we introduced the term Mohican. If you, if you think back to the old punk rock days, uh, the, uh, the haircuts where you have some long hair and some short hair, that's the real sweet spot for uh, lawn diversity. So we have something like 75% of all of UK native flowers are found on people's lawns. And what then started happening, Jennifer was people started writing into their councils or to their local um, decision makers or managers and saying, hang on, you've got a piece of grass in this parkland. Why don't you leave some of it to go wild? Um, Why don't you leave this piece of amenity land just to be itself and to see what happens? Uh, So the momentum behind it is extraordinary and it's, Again, from a purist point of view, you say, well, the reality is we don't actually get very many, very rare species. You you get a few. But what it's doing is introducing people to the world around them. It's showing them how they can um, make small changes, which are fundamentally important for nature. And, And what really excites me is that people then go to our website and say, I've got these flowers, which I've never seen before, and I'd like to know what they are and they start to uh, use our spotter sheets, our identification programs, and they start to learn about, you know, the wildlife around them. And just that small step, that small step of saying, okay, let's now just get interested in uh, the flowers on our lawns. It starts everybody on their own little journey. And some of it won't go any further than that, but for other people, it's, it's, a, it's one of those moments, it's the epiphany moments that they say, wow, I can really be part of the solution here by doing these tiny things, I can start to help. And it doesn't matter if they jump on a plane or they put gas in their engine or they, you know, they're, you know, they're buying consumer goods still because they're starting, they're starting to look at the world around them in a different way and they're beginning that journey. And that's, that's just great.
0: Well, and it's as we know, um, you know, just having them go from the green blur to, uh, a, a plant they recognize and can put even a common name to, um, n- makes them familiar and therefore invested in this home of, of ours and, um, a- and is such great joy, like, you know, as, People who see plants for the individuals and um, communities that sustain us—they—that's uh, a joy and wonder that is, I think, our our greatest strength and important to share as as we
1: can. Well, I think I think that's right. I think I think you've used the right term there. That it starts um, to get people invested in um, the world around them, and the, the numbers sound quite low from probably from a U.S. perspective, but. Um, Last year, because at the end of at the end of the the lawn period, we asked people to do some citizen science. So we asked them just to put a uh, a square meter or a square yard uh, measurement on a piece of their lawn, and just to count all the flowers within it. Um, but that also enables them to start looking at the insects, which they get as well. And we we identified last year more than a hundred new new pollinators on UK lawns. Including 23 very rare butterflies, uh, about 27 very rare moths, different bees, um, a wide range of bumblebees. So just that, just that sense of changing the plant community around you. And of course, your gardeners will know this in in great detail, but changing that plant community around you changes the insects around you, it changes the birds around you. And it it just uh, enriches the natural world, uh, the natural world around us. And coming from these very, very small steps from from a behavioral point of view is just fascinating and and very rewarding. Well,
0: I think think you have answered my final question, Ian, Um, but perhaps there are things you might like to add as to, you know, in this moment where we hear... A great deal, and, and we need to hear a great deal about things such as, you know, the, the warming climate, the insect apocalypse, the all of the things that are disheartening and can feel daunting. Um, you know, there still are great joys and there still are these potential areas for great hope. When you think about this, is there anything you would like to add about your own maybe very personal uh, joy or connection at home with your family, in your garden, on the trail, anything you would like to add there?
1: Well, from, from my side, I, I think it's, it's a bit about slowing down. Um, having, a, having an international career and traveling the globe, uh, and I've, I've worked on all seven continents, has, has been a great experience. But there's as much richness in my backyard, in the back garden um, as there is in all of those travels. And and very often uh, you walk straight by or you just don't stop and observe the the world around us. Um, So for me, what's been very important is is reconnecting. It's it's looking at at what is happening in in the micro as well as in, in, in 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 the macro and i'm very you know mentally and intellectually i'm very very interested in big systems in in global patterns in movements etc so those are the those are the things that really intrigue me but increasingly what i'm finding really fascinating and really important is what's happening just outside the back door or the rear window and seeing how uh, being part of of that at an individual level can actually build up um, a degree of momentum that can have really significant behavioural change. And I think with with COP26 coming up with these, these hugely important discussions around climate, the, you know, the shift in the US government position at the moment, um, we, we have an, another opportunity to have a go at slowing down some of the consequences which are taking place around us. And that's um, being part of that um, equation, just a tiny, tiny, tiny part of an equation is, um, is a great place to be.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been um, an adventure and, uh, and a great pleasure to speak with you about the work of plant life. It's exciting stuff.
1: Well, great. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and um, you know, great luck with the program.
0: Ian Dunn is the CEO for Plant Life, a British conservation charity working for the past 30 years nationally and internationally to save threatened wildflowers and plants. Plants and their fungal counterparts are the life support for all our wildlife and their color and character light up our landscapes. From the open spaces of our nature reserves to the corridors of government, Plant Life works to raise the profile of plants to celebrate their beauty and to protect their future. I love Plant Life's tagline, the future of wildflowers is not cut and dried. Let's keep growing to make that so. Join us again next week when we move from biodiversity in the United Kingdom to biodiversity in the U.S. Conserving Plant Diversity in New England is a new groundbreaking report resulting from a two-year collaboration between Native Plant Trust and the Nature Conservancy. The report provides a specific scientific framework and detailed roadmap for conservation action and land protection at the species, habitat, and parcel scales that will effectively save plant diversity and thus overall biodiversity in New England but with lessons for all of us as the climate changes listen in next week cultivating place is a co-production of north state public radio a service of cap radio licensed to chico state enterprises cultivating place is made possible by listeners just like you To see many photos from this week's conversation with Ian Dunn of Plant Life International, make sure to check out this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're grateful for the tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.